well, st- talk about starting on time. Go, Dorcas Randy D. How are you, everybody? This is Dorcas Smith out of Plymouth, Michigan. I am very happy to welcome you all on the call today. Um, it's a wonderful day to be here, and I hope after listening to yesterday, you're all thinking about how, yes, every one of us has been abused in some kind of traumatic way over our lives for one reason or another, and you can heal yourself because humans have been healing themselves for years. Dance rhythmically, move, sing, play an instrument, meditate. There are so many things that you can do to heal yourself. Or, to, as I put it, to heal your heart. You can heal. If you've got issues that you dealt with that, you are, that, are, that are sitting in your soul from your past, go look at them and dance and move and throw them out the window. You can heal. You truly can. All right. So today, remember, laughter trumps trauma. Remember to laugh. In your car, sing at the top of your voice. Singing at the top of your voice releases all kinds of anxiety. So, I'm reading from John Rady and Richard Manning, Go Wild. And this is our weight management call. And despite the fact that we talk about the program itself, of the shakes, the exercise, the sleep, the water, all that is really, really important. And this is our Body Burn 30 TR90 call. So there's two systems you can use. One is more complex than the other. I still use the TR90 because I I use it as a maintenance. And if I'm going somewhere... A little shake in the car is a great way to make sure that you're eating well and that you have energy over the day. But my call today is about the other aspect of being healthy, which is the move and the exercise. And as I learned when I was teaching, the metacognition of this. And that means thinking about thinking. Metacognition is thinking about thinking. So we are doing some metacognition today and we are thinking about our stress and our struggles in life and trauma and what we can do to make ourselves well. Now, there is a word, an overused, worn out, imprecise, deflated word that comes up when we talk about our danger and challenges, stress. Now, according to Pourget, we shouldn't use the word He thinks it's a bad word. And now we've gone and done it. We've opened a can of worms that is in fact going to cause Manning and Rady to backtrack on another word that has served us well in our discussion so far. But once you deflate the idea of stress, you also begin to undermine the notion of homeostasis, which is precisely what we need to do now. Homeostasis. Huh. Old hat. Let's think about that as last week's news. 
Now, instead, we have to think about aliostasis. And just hold on, because I went to my library online, and I got my definitions out. Homeostasis. Homeostasis is a noun. The tendency towards a relative stable equilibrium between interdependent elements, especially as maintained by physiological processes. Aliostasis, also a noun. The process by which the body responds to stressors in order to regain homeostasis. So, we need aliostasis. Why? This is really interesting. The fact that some enterprising folks in the tech world began marketing a new sort of household thermostat makes this distinction easy to analyze. Analyze. Analogize. Homeostasis is like a thermometer. In some cases, it behaves exactly like one. Exert exert yourself on a hot day and your body temperature rises above the set point of 98.6. So you begin to sweat and so that evaporation and cooling return your body to your set point. Homeostasis, that's what it is. The body's mechanism for maintaining stability at set points, such as heart rate, respiration, blood pressure, hunger, thirst, and so on and so on. It's just like the sort of, sort of thermostat that hangs on your wall. Now, you set a temperature, and a furnace or an air conditioner kicks in at the appropriate time to maintain it. Or at least that's how it worked for hundreds of years. But the newer high-tech thermostats actually remember the changes that you make to room temperature according to conditions. Not through just simple memory and programs. These new high-tech thermometers or thermostats actually learn. They remember and they predict your behavior. So they know when you get up on a cold day and they turn up the heat in advance just as you would. This argues the new thinking, is more in line with how your body works. Only your body is even more sophisticated because unlike the thermostat on your wall, humans have a big brain. The neuroscientist Peter Sterling laid out the difference in the introduction to a key paper on the topic, offering the beginnings of an idea that is providing some needed traction for this new thinking. The premise, he said, of the standard regulatory model, homeostasis, is actually flawed. The goal of regulation is not to preserve consistency of the internal milieu. Rather, it is to continually adjust the milieu to promote survival and reproduction. Regulatory mechanisms need to be efficient, but homeostasis, the error correction by feedback, is inherently inefficient. Thus, although feedbacks are certainly ubiquitous, they should not, they could not possibly serve as the primary regulatory system. 
so. A newer model, says Peter Sterling, allostasis proposes that efficient regulation requires anticipating your needs and preparing to satisfy them before they arise. Now think on this. Put another way, homeostasis can only deliver stability. And in life, stability is literally a dead-end strategy. The only stable condition of a biological organism is dead. (laughs) Your body systems must allow for growth, which means more than just simply adjusting for existing conditions. Your vital systems must roll with the punches today and build the capacity to absorb future punches. Getting ready for the future. Our bodies can predict automatically aliostasis. We have already seen the fundamental design feature of this at work. It goes beyond the example of the high-tech thermostat. A thermostat controls one system in your home, only one. But your body is made up of a series of interlocking systems, circulation, digestion, immune, nervous, endocrine, and so forth. Sterling points out what any designer of an efficient car already knows. If each of those systems needed its own energy reserves and capacity to meet all the needs at all times independently, the whole system would be inherently over-designed and extremely inefficient. Aha! Better then to allow energy borrowing between the systems, just as we have seen. Flight, now think about this one and what it does to your digestive system. Fight, flight, or freeze down the the digestive and the immune systems simply to allow the muscles to use that energy instead. Think about that in the long term. Yet, that same principle explains exactly why it makes no sense to treat a particular malfunction or disease by considering only one system. The overload that is producing the problem may be in another part of the body altogether, which is why the psychological problems like PTSI show up as digestive show up as digestive issues and can be treated by the body, or why, for that matter, Carol Worthman's contention, contention that we pay for sleep deprivation in the currency of stress is true. The body is making adjustments throughout the system to meet immediate needs, and all of this is checked and balanced by the brain. In the same time, though, the system is looking to the future, both short-term, in seasonal cycles, and long-term, in the changes in the conditions of life. Let's have a look at one short-term systematic change that comes as days lengthen in the spring. At this time of year, we react to increasing sunlight by producing skin pigmentation that protects us from the increasing sunlight later in the year. 
Another example is that most animals store fat as winter approaches. How do they know? How does their body know to store fat before winter? Aha, alleostasis. But long-term regulation seems more critical in the light of the issues that have concerned us throughout this book. And Rati says that he's already seen, or we've already seen examples of just how long-term we might mean by this. Remember the research that concluded that the best predictor of obesity in children was low birth weight. The feces senses the conditions that produce low birth weight in utero as a predictor as a predictor of lifetime as a predictor of a lifetime of scarce resources. And so the little body, the baby's body, adjusts by becoming good at storing fat. This is not a disease or a malfunction, really, but an adaption. Now remember, too, that an important predictor of an infant's low birth weight is his mother, his or hers mother's own low birth weight, meaning the body is setting in those adaptive processes across generations. Oh, wow, that's amazing. We always assume that the method for transmitting, transmitting traits across generations is genetic. For a long time, science has made much of genetic predisposition, and certainly genes play a role in governing our lives. But it is also true that much was made of genes because at the time we happened to know a lot more about genes. That is, we were looking for the car keys where the light is best. In recent years, though, a whole new field has exploded on the scene. Are you ready for the word? Epigenetics. Yes. Newskin talks about epigenetics, which is the study of gene regulation, how it is influenced by the environment, and how it is inherited across generations. Much will be illuminated by this line of inquiry but it has already pointed to one key mechanism. And in fact, we have already seen it in action in a couple of areas that we have talked about. Remember Sue Carter's worry about oxytocin doses to infants based on the research that shows how young voles given nasal doses of oxytocin had weird relationships as adults? Her explanation was a down-regulation of receptors. That is... The voles' bodies still produced oxytocin, but the young baby brain had adjusted to the excess by turning down the sensitivity of special cells that direct the signals or that detect the signals. That is down regulation. Sterling identifies this as a key me mechanism in aliostasis, the body's ability to adjust to variations in the environment, a recalibration of its instruments. Sterling says in his papers, thus, when blood, this is really interesting, thus, when blood glucose is persistently elevated and triggers persistent secretion of insulin, the insulin re receptors eventually anticipate high, high, insulin, high insulin levels and so they down-regulate. 
the system learns that blood glucose is supposed to be high. This is the smoking gun for insulin resistance, the very issue that lies at the heart of our worst health problems, like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. It is our body's collective response to a long-term change in the conditions of life wrought by industrial agriculture and processed food. Last bit. Yet, wrapped in this sort of adaptation for change is the tech is the mechanism for growth, and it too is rooted in what we might call stress. Stress is actually good for you. It is the process at work in every long run uphill or in every set of bench presses, bench presses that reaches for new person reaches for a new personal record. We build muscles by tearing them down, by stressing them beyond their limits. The body reads this as a need for more muscle to meet those new conditions in your life. And so the body builds it. And this works the same way in the brain. Brain building chemistry, sorry, brain building chemicals build new cells and make existing cells stronger with stress. There you go. Now the question is, which kind of stress? And we're going to go back. This is Granny D. Dorcas Smith finishing up today. It's already two minutes past, but I I love to finish off everything. Here we go. All right. 